you know, I got held up at gunpoint three or four times, you know, other people, you know, were beaten violently and stuff, but it was worth it. I was cooking chicken, but it burned. My husband come home and hit me, he say, I've never learned. I say, go to hell, and he say, what's that smell? I said, I was cooking chicken. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Who Cares Anyway podcast. My guest on this episode is Mark Jurgis. And where to start with Mark Jurgis? Well, maybe the place to start would be Porest, P-O-R-E-S-T, which we heard a little snippet of there in the intro music, and we'll hear more excerpts of throughout this episode, but uh, Porest being the more or less solo project that he has had going since, oh, at least the early 2000s, although, as we'll hear in this episode, it arguably dates back to the 1970s. Uh, but in addition to Porest, there is also Monopause and Noingfok, a group that he co-founded with previous Who Cares Anyway podcast guest Peter Conheim in the early 90s in Oakland. And for the same reason that I wanted to have Peter Conheim on as a guest, I wanted to have uh, Mark Jurgis on to uh, get into some of that adjacent history, meaning adjacent both in uh, space, with Oakland being on the other side of the bay from San Francisco, and uh, time with uh, most of most of monopause slash knowing fox activity coming just after the period where the book ends you know 1995 being sort of the end of the book but uh monopause slash knowing fox continuing into the mid 2000s and then uh, as if that weren't enough mark Jurgis has also been a key contributor throughout the lifespan of the sublime frequencies label and that, in turn, connects us back to another previous guest, Hisham Mayette, guest on episode six. And so there's some overlap in both of those senses, but uh, how does it all fit together? Well, that was sort of a overarching question that I had coming into this episode that I actually almost forgot to ask, or did forget to ask, but we sort of wind our way through all these different topics and then uh, toward the end Mark sort of brings us back to that question of you know how does this fit together in terms of his original music under the name Porist and what he did with Monopause on the one hand and then his archival slash audio excavation work unearthing and compiling music from far-flung parts of the world from you know Southeast Asia to Syria and Iraq and elsewhere One other thing I wanted to mention, Mark's brother, Eric, who is referred to a couple of times in this episode, uh, had an accident, injury, uh, in the fall of 2023. I don't know the details, but I know that there's a GoFundMe that I made a little contribution to, and many others have as well. But there will be a link to that in the show notes. I think they've almost reached their goal, but... uh, The link, again, will be in the show notes, along with links to Mark Jurgis's various Bandcamp pages with Porest, Sublime Frequencies, etc. And so I think, I think that is enough background for us to get on into this episode. So without any further ado, here is my interview with Mark Jurgis.
Well, uh, I grew up in the East East Bay in the suburbs. We lived in Oakland, and then um, in the early seventies, we moved to uh, Lafayette, California, um, which is out near Walnut Creek. And it's there that I grew up, and uh, the damage was done out there. So I came from a kind of a wildly normal but wildly crazy family at the same time. Uh, my dad's from Iraq. My mom is, uh, you know, a woman from California, and you know, she became a Seventh-day Adventist in the, in the mid seventies and grew up in a household where like, you know, the policies were that such that, you know, it was G rated films only and and no rock and roll and that kind of thing. And uh, I just got super obsessed with whatever I could get a hold of, you know, in the world and find in this, in this giant world, you know, just from the TV set, if I was allowed to watch it, you know, so I would, I mean, I, at some point I just realized I was nowhere, you know, and, and I, I had a tape recorder and I had a sibling, Eric, um, who I still collaborate with. We would do these kind of radio plays and um, play instruments poorly and just kind of do, you know, weirdly scripted stuff for people on tapes and perform it on the fireplace mantle and that kind of thing. So it started at a really young age. I just released a, here's a plug. I just released oh, yeah. a, a 19, porous 1976, 1977 album up on Bandcamp. And uh, that kind of cements um, or imagines that there was a porous in the 70s. But I guess there was because it's just me and, uh, and Eric's on that too. But yeah, it all started way, way, way back then. And then, you know, fast forward um, in the mid 80s or so, I just, you know, kind of realized that I lived next to Berkeley in Oakland and it was a BART right away. And I would just start venturing out there and, you know, met a lot of great people, some at school, some out, out there and go to going to San Francisco and just, you know, get, blow my mind with music and uh, literature and good psychedelics and, you know, kind of force my perspective into something else at some point. You know, there was a lot. It was a big world out there and there was a lot going on. I didn't understand politically at the time, you know, like uh, um, um in literary terms and in, in my knowledge of anything you know i just felt really small all of a sudden which is a great place to find yourself i think and um just wanted to expand that and start learning and start you know creating i just i always wanted to create i was always doing like cell animation or super 8 films and and sound and audio so you end up gravitating toward people that that do things like you do you know and and i was lucky to meet some other californians some in southern california some around me in school and who wanted to do those sort of things and so throughout the late 80s in lafayette and concord you know i had these kind of just balls out noise tape bands you know we just do, do basically like you know field recordings and then distort them through a line radio shack line mixer and you know like this is in the late 80s and add stuff to them and yell over them or you know do weird random you know poetry that made no sense or you know that kind of thing and just had a great time doing that stuff and we were you know super inspired by what we were listening to and and also what we what we couldn't hear what we were you know what ideas we had that weren't being expressed that we thought so some of that stuff is uh obviously left better on, on those old tapes but uh <laughs> yeah but but it, we had a good time and uh, eventually that became a little bit more refined, we thought, in uh, in the form of like, you know, using samples or, you know, I say samples because at the time samples were, yeah, it was pretty radical. It wasn't like, you know, do, 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 sample, you know, it was like um, more, you know, you're incorporating 
your own your field recordings or stuff you get off TV, and you know you hear that on Chrome Records and stuff like that too. You know where, you know, obviously like you're playing with media, you had negative land. Negative land blew my mind. You know, accidentally, again in the Bay Area, you know, there's this there's a there's the blessing of radio. We pre-internet, you know, eighties, you're a teenager and you're you're in your room in the suburbs. KPFA had a really strong station, and Negative Land had that show uh, over the edge for for so many years, decades. And I accidentally tuned into that. Uh, I forget what state of mind I was in. It was about one or two in the morning on a Halloween, nineteen eighty five. And I had never really heard anybody do anything like that with sound that clicked so hard with me. And these were the live shows they would do, just just mania. A lot of them are archived. I can't find that one. I've tried, um, but. I think that sort of changed my life that night. I like those life-changing kind of influences and events, and and they were certainly one of them. Uh, I was fortunate to get turned on to Sun City Girls that same year in 1985. Uh, a friend of mine, Ron Dillon, came up from boarding school in Arizona via L.A., and he had that first record of the Sun City Girls, and we'd listen to that all the time. You know, it's just I was kind of like bombarded with with all kinds of music that year just and 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 it blew my mind from you know really deep stuff like like the girls or negative land or you know to to like kind of well-loved post-punk stuff like you know minute who's crudue and like you know the punk scenes all over the place super regional stuff i would get into and uh it all just kind of made a lot of sense you know uh just immersing in that and i'm, I'm pretty obsessive anyway so i get deep into stuff like that and have I answered your question yet? No. Well, yeah, yeah, and we can I, actually we can, as they say, circle back. But I was going to interject one thing because you you sort of said something that I had already been thinking, which was, you know, there's these two kind of traditions that that are in your music, Negative Land and Sun City Girls, and those are both uh... these West Coast, very distinct lineages or traditions and monopause might lean a little closer to the negative land side of things forest definitely has those techniques but also maybe the the darker sense of humor of and some of the other commentary of sun city girls and then uh i guess sublime frequencies i guess you could say maybe sun city girls slash sublime frequencies and negative land but but those are both present and so i was going to i was curious when yeah when you came across those but hey both of them in 1985 Pretty early on. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I went from listening to pop music in, you know, a couple years earlier, just because that's what was on the radio or whatever to English, you know, new wave stuff I would hear at school as a 13 or 14 year old, you know, whatever the, you know, the stuff you'd get on the radio that was like more, you know, that, that showed you that there was something else, you know, like even Devo would make it to the radio or Sparks or something like that. And then you'd realize, oh, there's, there's this, you know, kind of quirky world or there's this or like and i don't understand it but i want to and, and let's, let's dive deeper into that and or you know, frank zappa or you know obviously the world of music and sound in a pre-internet world you've got your radio you've got your television and you've got your influences i think that's a really astute um you know if you were my therapist and you just told me that that it's a fusion of negative land and sun city girls i'd probably you know yeah you're probably right i mean it's it's because you you click with what you feel is like-minded as well and and also then when you start doing your own work and you start taking that work a little bit more seriously or at least working a little bit harder on it to try and make it do something you know to turn on a machine that's you and it says something and expresses something you know at its at its base level you know you me anyway i'd like to express or 
do something on a stage or on an album that I'm not able to hear that I feel hasn't been expressed. And, you know, I want to be proven wrong all the time. I want to go out and see something that I'm, you know, that I'm feeling and thinking about, but yet I don't, I don't often see it. So I have to do that. And that's kind of the feeling of with, with bands like Monopause with more of the conceptual, um, you know, hijinks or, or <laughs> presentation or, you know, whatever behind, behind those, um, those outfits, like, you know, um, or even my earlier band, Screen Bread, which was a duo, you know, with a guy named Doug Loswald. It was like a lot of loops and samples, and we did some performance stuff too. It's it's basically trying to pull off something that we would like to see on a stage or here on a record, but we aren't quite hearing it. We're hearing elements of it, but, you know, we, I guess we have to get up there and blow our own minds, you know, in, in addition to everybody else's. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's about it's about presenting something that, that isn't seen, that you, you feel. And so I feel there's a kinship there. There's um, and I found that in the kind of no rules, you know, kind of anarchistic approach that uh, both of those negative land sensitive girls had uh, for sure. That it really defying everything that had been laid out before and showing that there are endless possibilities. There's no answers to any questions. There's you know, it's it's do whatever you want to do. You know, it's 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 not just a free for all. You know plink plonk it's there's there's a lot of thought going on going on there but it's also allowed to plink plonk around you know it's also allowed to meander and and uh do crazy things and then turn on its head uh 360 degrees and be something else and that 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 was the most inspiring you know those are the inspiring facets of those groups that i think really did it for me for sure yeah, you know, there's something uh, I was curious and something I had no idea about before doing some of the interviews for the book was that um, the early days of 924 Gilman, there was the experimental music night and um, Seymour Glass, uh, as I know him, mm -hmm. uh, mentioned, you know, going there on Friday nights and that would be when Negative Land or Thinking Fellers or those kind of bands or outfits would would play but did you ever did you ever see shows there uh in those like 80 well, i guess 87 87 i guess it, can you say the venue again it dropped out right there oh yeah gilman street oh, oh gilman yeah, yeah yeah of course i didn't see that i didn't see the negative land show or shows at gilman unfortunately and i'm a little bit younger than than some of the, those guys uh just by a few years and san francisco the barrier was so stringent with fucking age restrictive shows like you know it was a death sentence to be into music before the age of 21 in the bay area in the 80s and 90s and i missed so many good things because i know gilman's all ages this defies the purpose but you know i beam or you know a lot of those places like they just it was so prohibitive man i would try to like fight with the security guards like or or, or you know become friends with them or you know bribe them and nothing could work it was so that was really horrible, but but I was able to see, you know, there was a place called The Farm. Um, there were, you know, yeah, Gilman had 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 some cool stuff that I saw. I would go to what what were some other venues in the in the eighties and nineties? I mean, I beam I snuck into a few times under twenty one, Stone. You know, yeah, there were a lot of them, and and I'm getting older now, and I forget. But you know, and then also you'd have yeah. like weirdly curated nights at random places, or like you know, a, a cocktail bar would do something, or night break, or. God, where else? The No Theater, which was, um, yeah, that was a place that had shows too. But but then you'd get like shows like like a touring band like Public Image Limited in 1986 would come play, always with Faith No More and Camper Van Beethoven. You know, those were like the two opening bands. <laughs> I, I think I saw Camper Van Beethoven about 30 times in that uh, period of time. Right. And it was that early early Faith No More, you know, right. um, pre pre Mike Patton. Yeah. Um, 
ATA, Artist Television Access, was a cool place to go in the 80s uh, or early 90s, uh, you know, for cinema stuff. Yeah, I would I would just, you know, what, when was a luggage store? See, now you get older and you lose the timeline of when things were. Right, but, um, right. The chameleon. These are ghosts because, you know, I lived there so long and watched the whole thing die. And then right. you just walk by these old venues and think, hey, I, I saw a great show there, but it's now selling these weird this like dog ice cream or something like i don't really know what that is but you know yeah it's a wild thing when i interviewed peter about a year ago he was telling me about that stretch in uh west oakland and you know heckos was a place that i had a chance to go to a couple of times in the early 2000s but what was the uh, sort of timeline around that as far as monopause forming and then hecos and that that sort of stuff yeah so what happened is i finally got got it together to leave the suburbs like around i don't know yeah it was april 1991 i remember it now and i moved straight into west oakland not knowing anyone there moved in with a friend i moved in with a friend and um we went we lived on 8th and peralta and the landlord there who was a cool guy in his 30s you know uh he said you know there's a there's kind of a thriving neighborhood here you know amidst the chaos and violence um you'll find several you know really creative bands and artists doing all kinds of things and we're like okay man cool you know so we went there and sure enough you know every night you'd hear you'd hear these bands rehearsing and playing and i got to know them really quickly there were bands like at that time in west oakland um which we can come back to is a very, very separate thing from San Francisco at that point. Yes, like very, yes. very divided. Um, bands like Fibulator, who were amazing. Uh, bands like Little Mai, people, these I'm friends with these guys to, be, to this day. Lexa Walsh lived down there. Um, she would end up uh, running the Nights at Merchants um, in, in downtown Oakland and eventually her own uh, Heinz Afterworld Lounge, which I'm sure you've heard about. And um she was my neighbor. Uh, Rick Weldon uh, was my neighbor there too, also an ex-Adventist. And he's he's married to Ann Eichelberg from Thinking Colors now. Uh -huh. uh, you had um, got so many bands down there, just you know, bands like Amsterdam, Hamster Damage, uh, Mingo 2000, you know, I can go on and on. And then you had like the legendary, like the Fear House, you know, where the band Fear lived and rehearsed, just moved out before I came in. And that house like went up in flames. Uh, there was a band called Sinister Sisters of Satan there, and I think they they burned the house down. Um, but yeah, so many stories. There was also a theater there, an old vaudeville theater that uh, God, the name escapes me now. I hate this, but uh, it was my neighbor too, and and they would host shows there, like Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum played there, and others, and they would have cinema nights, and uh, it was just such a cool scene down there. You know, I got held up at gunpoint three or four times. You know, other people, you know, were beaten violently and stuff, but it was worth it. Were a lot of bands rehearsing in their house? Would they live there and rehearse there? Or was, oh, was yeah. there a separate? Okay. I've seen a monopause, something on, uh, I think on a either Porist or some kind of YouTube clip that looks like it looks, it's a house that looks well lived in, but also a lot of music equipment. And uh, that's something that can't really be done in San Francisco. No, especially at that point. No, no, it's true. I mean, so yeah, I ended up moving around different, places in West Oakland and, and downtown Oakland until I finally settled in 95. I got this really giant space 
that we were able to play music in at all hours of the day or night. And that became my domain for the next 15 years. And that was directly across the street from Heckos, which okay. is lovingly called Heckos Palace, which I think they hosted a show last week. You know, Heckos still going. He just visited my okay. brother in Detroit. Okay. But, uh, you know, yeah, that whole scene was really, really something and also very inspiring on another level. Um, and in all of that, through friends, um, I met Peter Kahnheim that same year in 1991. Um, I met him because I was on a quest to find this, like, song that had disappeared, or this album that had that I'd known in my youth that had disappeared from my life, didn't know the artist names or the music. Peter figured it out within about five seconds. And and I just have him to thank for that, you know, to this day. That was Perry and Kingsley. Okay. In sound from way out. <laughs> oh. And uh, I'd had that when I was 11. And uh, he just knew right away, knew what I was talking about. He worked at what uh, Asta's Records at the time in Oakland. Uh, and eventually at a, at a video rental store called Movie Image. And uh, we just, you know, we hung out a lot and, you know, uh, realized we were into a lot of the same stuff and, and started working together creatively, making, you know, recordings in my at a basement flat at one point in downtown Oakland and back to West Oakland. So we started just, you know, making music and sounds and kind of deep listening to stuff together, you know, and ended up coming up with um, a plan to, I, I guess, I think Peter just booked a show and we came up with a name for the band. And that was in November 93, which is, oh, my God, 30 years ago. Right. I think it was November, November, like next week, it's 30 years ago. So um, Monopause had their first show uh, at Lexus Heinz Afterworld Lounge. I think it was nearly around the same time that I saw maybe the last Heavenly Ten Stems show ever, which was the only Heavenly Ten Stems Stem show I ever saw, uh, where they were in plain clothes. Oh, okay. Sometime around that time. I don't know. It all it all gets mixed up. But anyway, yeah, Monopause started then. I think that that, that we confused people by saying we, we were from Wisconsin. Isn't that funny? A little regional humor. But uh, it, at, <laughs> at that point, I think we were really into the Wisconsin dialect of speaking, you know, like in Minnesota and like, oh, you know, let's go back to my house, you know, and like, like that kind of thing. And this is before Fargo came out or something. I think we were just into these regional differences that were disappearing in the United States. And we, and we had to come up with a fucking bio you know like okay what do we say and so then a lot of people really thought we were from wisconsin and there, there are genuine bands from wisconsin i mean it's like i think that's statist isn't it you can't just do that you can't just you know say i'm from that state but yeah sure you can uh i don't know yeah monopause was <laughs> yeah monopause was monopause it was um everything and nothing and it was kind of funny for us to just start a band and do these shows and and we kept doing it and it and it started developing and turning into something viable and you know we started taking it a little more seriously and then you know in monopause part once it was a ridiculous group that, that just tried to do anything we possibly could to you know entertain ourselves and confuse audiences and antagonize in a very you know loving way to our friends i mean we were insular like a lot of bands in the bay area so you know we never really toured that much um, but we had a 10 year run of just doing, doing a lot of kind of what we called situationist, you know, performance, the rock theater, whatever. And, and, um, you know, we, we had these really high concepts that would get pulled off in the monopause way, which means like something would always go wrong, but we built, it was, it was foolproof because everybody, nobody knew it was going wrong. You know, it always seemed like it was part of the plan. So, um, we kind of had this foolproof way of like, yeah, and if we played a song really badly, everyone thought we did it on purpose, but we didn't. And uh, I love that about monopause. It was just kind of like this free for all in a way, but also had a very specific uh, 
a specific way of operating, you know, and a, and a, and a rotating cast of really great friends and musicians that that came and went over the years. And um, yeah. Yes. I mean, when I, when I really was seeing you all live, it was by that point, you all were mostly doing the knowing Fox shows. If, if I'm not mispronouncing that too badly, but, uh, and then before then as, as, cause I, I moved out there kind of midway through monopause's uh, tenure. Uh, I moved out there mm -hmm. yeah, October 99. And then it took me a while to find some things. And it was kind of through the Spock morgue. And I remember the, the clit stop and some of that stuff. And, and I sort of was aware that monopause had this history of you know having been around but i didn't really know much about it and it took me a little while but do you feel like you know post whatever post 2000 post something else that there was a that that was a distinct era 100 percent. i noticed a new era starting in 99 or 2000 with the clit stop and uh other you know like grux come out of it i was like oh my god is that grux i hadn't seen him in four, four years or some five years or something you know since the earlier mid 90s Oh wow! These 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 noise shows at the quit stop, and you know a lot of new people cropping up, and um, a new energy. I mean, there had been like I just described a scene in West Oakland that that is that you know, eventually petered out and you know dissipated, and people ended up moving away. I saw so many eras come and go, you know, in the Bay Area, and um, I was pretty insular. I mean, like you know, I mean, I would. I loved going to shows and seeing stuff and like being inspired, but I also loved just hunkering down and making sounds and music by myself as poorest or whatever, and dropping out of the nineties culture or whatever, trying not to, you know, be influenced by trying, trying just to leave the TV off and that kind of thing. Like, you know, no cultural references for me. You know, if somebody at work tried to bring up something they saw in Seinfeld, I didn't even know what they were talking about, you know, or, or whatever, that kind of world where I just kind of built this world where it was all about the music and, and the, you know, the, that lifestyle and, um, and the cigarettes. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think then, uh, it dropped, you know, San Francisco had the post, the dot com, post dot com boom really was, it was just a weird thing to watch happen. And I felt like it obviously it killed a lot of the spirit that was there in that way, made it unaffordable for people, undesirable. You know, I was really, out of the Bay Area when people would come from out of town. I was, I loved, I loved where I lived. You know, I, I, it was a, it was a strange thing to realize. I know a lot of people don't love where they live, but you know, that kind of, it kind of felt like the end of the world after a while, you know, it's just, I was tripping over dead people and feces and like, you know, just looking at some um, horrible despair. It was getting ridiculous. And I think that it wasn't that conducive. There was a dead spot. It was a dead spot. And that's when I really turned inward and monopause really started honing our thing and like, you know, going full speed ahead on our insularity and, you know, small, whatever, you know, 10 people that liked us. And uh, then I kind of, my brother and I kind of, well, let's kind of said, let's go into San Francisco. I saw a flyer for a show. Let's just go check it out. Like around, I don't know, 99 or 2000. And it was at the clit stop. And that's when I, you know, I saw Grux there and I saw other people and I was like, oh my God, yeah, where did this come from? And then very quickly that just exploded into and this is my perception you know i'm not i'm not you know john dwyer or like some other people who were probably in it or paul castoros who watched that whole transformation happen i just i had kind of like given up and i'm like 30 something 32 or whatever and i come and come in there and i'm like wow this is again like something is happening here and uh monopause kind of sort of integrated into that and became a part of that too and we became met some great new people and and um, that Oakland-San Francisco divide seemed to have narrowed. Um, 
I had spent a few years traveling like in, in the Middle East and Syria and, and spending a lot of time in, in Europe and Germany. And then I came back and there was, you know, there was this. And um, so it seemed like there were just different influences, different attitudes now, you know, kind of a, uh, I don't know, there was a bigger commotion overall locally, I think, and a um, kind of a can-do attitude, you know, about putting shows together at all times. There was always something going on. And that's when, you know, you came in around that time and, and um, you know, yeah, I mean, Monopause just plodded along in our in, in our way and, and met a lot of new friends and a lot of offshoots started happening too. You know, relationships started with like Recipient Records, Zeke Shack and, you know, Brand Paws. Then you had, you know, Hans Grusel and you had all these other kind of, man, there's so much, so much. I mean, then you had the pink and brown, you had everything, you know, kind of all kinds of things going on in San Francisco. I think it was, again, it was an exciting time to be there. And it's a time that... Um, you know, somehow, and I know this, you know, I've, I've noticed this covered in, in your book quite well and in the people that you've discussed it with. But there's a there's a sabotage flair to San Francisco. There always has been. There's like a I remember I went to Chicago in the late 80s and I was talking to a bartender who had spent time in San Francisco. And he said, you know what, San Francisco, nobody gets anything done. And I was like, OK, yeah, interesting. So thought about it and it's like okay and i took that home with me because chicago's got like the, the undisputable work ethic right so it's like the right. perfect thing for chicago to say but in a way like what he means is i think that there's almost a decidedly self-sabotage or you know or decidedly like we're not gonna do anything that gets recognized we're not gonna take this out of this room you know, like we're going to keep this so secret and so, you know what I mean? And so I think there's a, there is something there. It's hard, it's hard to, and I'm a California native, you know, and I know there's, I know this kind of like thing that happens even, and and even to the people that just moved to California, there's this centrifuge of kind of defeatism or something that, that, that happens. And it's, it's not that it's a bad thing. It's a reaction. It's a reaction to something. And it's, um, but it's decidedly not stagnant it's very alive but it's also like and we will never tour another city we you know we will we will you know we'll make this album and and then never press it or like nobody will hear it or it'll be like covered in dirt or you know whatever like there's there's some there's something about san francisco that, that makes a certain groups of people want to do that and that's it's 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 been evidenced in your in your research in your book which i've appreciated hearing i think trey had something good to say about that i was listening to the trey podcast or reading something he wrote he kind of summed it up really well i wish i remembered what he said um oh right right but does that resonate with you yeah you, uh, you i think well I, yeah i think a lot of it when i when i started on it i was there was something in this a handful of things that I knew and I didn't necessarily know how they connected, but I was like, what is this quality about this stuff that, uh, it's, yeah, it's like you said, it's not necessarily that it's a good or bad thing. I was like the popo pies. I was just finished editing and putting out that episode with Joe and thinking about all, all of the, the different things, like on the third record, there are two backwards songs because right. there were engineering issues with the forward versions. I never even knew why they were backwards, but I just knew it's kind of one of those things that is both annoying and at the same time, uh, <laughs> you appreciate that it's part of mm -hmm. what they do. And they never, uh, whether it's Flipper, or the Amarillo stuff, uh, Sun City Girls not being from San Francisco, but still has a lot of this quality. It's like they, 
yeah, they never make things easy for you. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's yeah, this yeah. antagonism, but it, but it's at the same time, it's not just like they're up there abusing you in a, in a sort of sadistic way. It's nothing like that. It's, it's always hard to kind of, it's a push and pull. It's a thing. And I, I don't know that I'm any closer to being able to articulate it now than, than when I started, mm -hmm. but at least, uh, gave me an excuse to, you know, talk to people and hear what they had to say about it. And, uh, for sure. I think it's, I don't think, yeah, I don't think it's a negative thing that antagonizing that is it's, it's a device. It's not easy. It's not, uh, it doesn't give too much away. It's not, it's not broad, but it's also not exclusively pretentious and narrow. You know, there's something, there's something very giving about it. I find, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, it's confounding for sure. And I think, I think there is a, there's a long history of that there. I mean, you know, that, yeah, that's why I felt, uh, and I think, I don't know, again, <laughs> what you've heard or what you heard from or what I left in the interview with Peter uh, of my own speaking. But I was saying to him that, you know, when I moved out there, I had this idea of this music that I was interested in, but it was stuff that wasn't really happening anymore. And then what was going on was interesting in its own right, but it just felt different. But uh, Monopause, Knowing Fuck, I felt like was uh, one sort of exponent of whatever that old not, not old that previous tradition yeah. that that tradition uh and i mean you, you had like-minded people but i think that what you all were doing was pretty different from a pink and brown or a total shutdown or uh oh yeah 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 yeah. we had our thing and we we were uh, whatever that was that thing was shifting all the time but i feel uh, it was quite separate from that uh we were definitely in our own world and and maybe we were more related to what had come earlier but uh just by dint of being a bit older too yeah, I mean, it was what it was, and we really enjoyed doing it. And people really—it's—it's that—that that era. People seemed to really embrace what we were doing, uh, and we, you know, in a cool way that you know we we would use we play the Stork Club a lot in the '90s or whatever, and just do you know for friends and whatever. And and then we just kind of built ourselves into some kind of monster that that there were like a lot of demands that we put on ourselves to keep changing it up and keep doing things to defy the last thing and. And uh, whether anyone noticed this or not, but that was the internal, you know, so um, it was just something we really enjoyed doing. And uh, and it, it did feel quite separate, though. And going back to this, like, divide between the two cities across the bay, it's like in Oakland, we felt like we had the best of both worlds. We had Oakland and Berkeley and we had San Francisco. That was all ours. San Francisco didn't feel like they had Oakland or they would never come visit. They would never, you know, they didn't understand what was going on there. All that vibrant stuff I described in the early nineties, very few people from San Francisco were coming over to check all of that out. Um, very strange, very strange how that shifted then. And then around that time, like that, that we're talking about now in the early two thousands, that had definitely changed up where there were, um, you know, there were bands playing both sides of the Bay three times a week or whatever, you know, people come and checking stuff out in Oakland or Richmond or whatnot. So I find that interesting. Very provincial actually, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of well, yeah, <laughs> I definitely, I definitely had some times when I went to see shows in the East Bay, I uh, didn't have a car and uh, I had some adventures getting back, you know, whether you could find a ride or otherwise you're trying to take the, uh, the AC bus and, and. Oh, uh, oh my God. Yeah. And so I've been uh, there. Yeah. I've been there. <laughs> yeah. There's no, the, yeah, for anyone listening, the BART runs, but it stops right around midnight. And so you'd either have to, I don't know, most shows wouldn't be over. 
Yeah, and then no. you gotta you gotta figure out how to get back. And if you didn't go over there that much, you wouldn't know your way around too well. And the ace the bus mm-hmm. would go, I think, once an hour, and then it drops you off at first in mission, <laughs> and you got to figure out how to get home that's, from that's there. Right. And so I have, so I do remember getting home after four a.m. for some some shows that I went over to and warehouse shows in the East Bay. So that's part of it, maybe. That's that's but part of the other. It would be true. It would be true going in the other direction, though, as well. Yeah, that was me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it would drop you off in downtown Oakland and you'd walk back to West Oakland, you know, and you'd get there by sunrise or something. Yeah. Good times. The first Sublime Frequencies project you did, was that the Cambodian cassette archive? It was in there. I think that was the second one. The first was, uh, I remember, Syria. Oh, right. Okay. That might have come out in November of 2003, the same time the first Porous actual CD came out, November 2003. And then Cambodian Cassette Archives came after that. And you came across those cassettes mostly at a, at a library in the East Bay? Is that right? For that release, um, yeah, a lot of them came from the South or the the Asian branch of the Oakland Public Library, which was which was amazing. And um, they had a bottom drawer of cassettes that were kind of neglected because CDs were the thing, and these tapes were from an earlier era. Most of them were from the early to late eighties, um, and a lot of them were diaspora recorded recordings uh, made in the states, made in Long Beach or Rhode Island or. Um, you know, wherever Cambodians settled after the after the war. And um, same with the Vietnamese uh, tapes that were also there that I was I was um, concurrently, you know, digging into, I would just go through these drawers and check out six tapes at a time and bring them home and take them over and transfer them, bring them back, and just super getting into this music. And, and in addition to that, I started going to a lot of the diaspora shops in San Francisco and Oakland, you know, the Laotian shops, but the Cambodian shops were a plenty down. There was a little kind of like um, unmarked little Cambodia in East Oakland. I think maybe only one of those shops remains today, if that, and, and Thai shops. And I, I just, I would start going in there and, and, and meeting the people that ran the shop and just asking questions about the music and just like getting deeper and deeper into it. And that kind of really became an obsession too. And then, you know, I was also traveling. I'd traveled for my first time to that region, to Southeast Asia, uh, with my brother in 2000. Um, we did. We went to Syria and Jordan and, and uh, Lebanon and stuff. But we we spent a few months in um, in Laos, in Burma, in uh, you know Thailand, etc. So started really, really digging into the music. And obviously, on my travels, you know, I'm I'm always getting tapes and bringing a radio and tuning in and you know doing the same thing, asking merchants questions about the tapes, learning about these styles and taking them home and kind of like processing them and getting blown away by them. Um, but in, for, for the Cambodian cassette archives, yeah, so it's a combination of tapes I found at those shops and tapes in that drawer, in those drawers at, uh, at the Open Public Library. So yeah, I've been putting that together for a few years. And I think my, my obsessions with all of that started just kind of in the mid 90s going to libraries were such an incredible place to go before we had phones and internet and stuff, you know, remember? <laughs> um, yeah, it's just like you'd, I'd spend hours at libraries and, and in, the, in, in the music section or in, in the book section and just or even looking at microfilms and that kind of thing. So yeah, that's where I would kind of lose myself and get um, get super into certain sectors of, of, of music, starting with, you know, whatever was available on 
the global music labels at the time in the 80s and 90s, but then really wanting to dig deeper into that. And when I heard this diaspora music that was coming out from the Cambodians, it really it, it really affected me. I really, really, really enjoyed it. And I felt like it, it really needed to be heard. Um, and, you know, I, I was lucky to meet Alan Bishop and, and Sun City Girls and the whole crew, Rob Millis and, and everybody else. Uh, Hishan Mayette and I had met uh, in San Francisco a couple of times in the late 90s. But through friends, um, you know, yeah, I was a big fan of the Sun City Girls, but I, I, I'm not the kind of person that like seeks people out because I like what they do. You know, I just, I, you know, whatever. I just enjoy what they do. So I never really imagined that we'd be partnering up and, you know, you know, becoming pals and, you know, like, you know, helping kind of form this label and, and do a bunch of releases for them. You know, that, that didn't, that was, that was incredible. And, um, you know, we had a lot to talk about with our different radio, radio recordings and field recordings, but also especially just about this music that had, that we were hearing on our travels that didn't seem to have any kind of exposure or, um, you know, nobody seemed aware of these, of, of these sounds, you know, more and more like the street sounds, the raw, the raw stuff you'd find on tapes, which is kind of how sublime frequencies came to be, you know, just the thought that why, why isn't this heard, you know, and, and can this be presented to, you know, a different kind of audience? Yeah, Trey would tell me about some of that. Uh, he told me about Princess Nicotine before it was reissued. Um, I forget mm -hmm. before it was a sublime frequencies. I don't know what it was before then, but and I he would tell me Majora. Know, Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. He, he would tell me about, uh, and I would go over to some of these shops in, in Berkeley, really not know what I was looking for, but I have a few things I got cassettes of, uh, Ananda Shankar, uh, in particular mm -hmm. 2000, I think 2001, uh, some of that stuff I, I really got into, but you know, that's in a, in a way, that's another thing that I came to realize was this, um, I don't know, alternative ethnomusicology, this, uh, Maybe that's not the best way to put it, but between Hisham, you, the rest of the Sublime Frequencies people, but also, you know, Secret Chiefs, uh, Heavenly Ten Stems for whatever controversy was there. It was uh -huh. all sort of, you know, A, it's not, the, it's it's decidedly not, quote unquote, world music, but it's also, and maybe I've made too much of a big deal of this, but I just find it interesting how as the so-called underground, you know, underground music of the eighties is becoming big mainstream rock in the nineties. So many people were turning to these other sounds, other eras or other places for, um, inspiration or, um, mm -hmm. I don't know exactly what there is to say about that. It, it could just be coincidence it's, there. No, it's very true. I mean, I, I felt insatiable with music and I felt like I had exhausted you know, everything I could in, in Western music. I mean, I, I had grown up listening to Arabic music by default, you know, with all my uncles and my dad. And 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 it wasn't as, um, you know, foreign a concept to me at all to be hearing Um Kaltum or anything like that. That was kind of like this base level up until I was about 10 or 11 years old, you know, in the background. But it was also something I kind of with, with America's kind of unspoken forced assimilation, you know, I don't know. It's something that you're embarrassed of. You come of age, and you don't want to be seen as something. You know, you've seen how people are treated from from other places, right? And you don't want to be that. You want to fit in with the clan. And so, as a, you know, going through puberty and like kind of coming of age at that time, it's this it's the kind of thing you really a lot of people at that time wanted to run away from. You know, the music of their parents. You know, uh, if their parents come from the Far East or from you know wherever, that it's not just the last thing you're going to put on. You know, when your friends are over. But, you know, coming full circle, you know, 
just falling in love with music in every dimension, you know, trying to hear as much music as I possibly could from, you know, everywhere. I don't know. When I started traveling and immersing in that in non-Western music, it just felt like this giant, unobtainable world, you know, with rife with, you know, mystery and secrets and but quite normal for for the people who are who are living it right but it was just me that was in the dark and i wanted to i just wanted to hear it all and you know i don't know it's weird these times that you know what interests is what interests me is like how it all gets processed you know you end up presenting this to a western audience too uh with a label like sublime frequencies and the letdown about like post-internet youtube archaeology you know where everyone can watch everything from any continent at any time now, you know, and get a crash course on any facet of any culture. Um, it's a great thing on one hand, but it's also, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of like just dulled a lot of things out and made this kind of static thing that where it's made us believe there aren't any more mysteries and there, and, and if there are, we're going to find them. God damn it. And, you know, as if the point was to kind of like, you know, hurry up and demystify the world and, and then classify it as such. And kind of like, you know, like, you know, I guess how, how colonialists would put things in museums too. It's like, all right, now we know what this is, you know, this, this animist thing, you know, it, it, it served this purpose. You know, it's, it's a strange, it's a strange thing to present, but it's also, I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll speak for myself, but you know, I'll speak for the U S here being originally from there myself. And I've been, I've, I left 10 years ago now. But, you know, where there doesn't commonly tend to be a lot of thought about the rest of the world on a, on a broad level. And that's a dangerous thing. You know, there's like this inherent insularity there that, I don't know, despite all the, you know, talk of being a melting pot, um, you know, which in, in America, which is true on one, on one hand, um, it seems to silently kind of uh, reinforce this invisibility. You know, kind of it, 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 like it perpetuates this lack of interest or or a reinforcement of um, of irrelevance when it comes to East Asia or you know elsewhere in the in the non-Anglo paradigm, I guess. And so, you know, I mean, I have some experience in that sector. Uh, you know, after years of invisibility, the Iraq War, for instance, and then nine eleven. You know, these these brought like kind of a sudden negative visibility for Arab Americans. Who, you know, like Iraq was a tourist destination when I was a young kid. You know, it was kind of this exotic, you know, place where flying carpets were or whatever. I think people of the cocktail generation were still kind of getting over their holiday to Baghdad. But I partly blame that ignorance and the lack of visibility, like that invisibility on something super destructive, you know, because when something barely exists and you don't see a relevance to it, then it's super easy to to demonize it overnight and eventually just kind of like sideline it or destroy it right so that's kind of there's kind of an engine there in me that that knows that and uh that feels that and that's it kind of works its way into the way i present this stuff too or that i try to anyway yeah no there's a lot there i'm thinking uh you know that that era uh the early 2000s you know i i actually went to a show on the night of 9 11 uh crack was playing over at uh covered Wagon oh, yeah. or something or yeah. something like that before i might have been there too okay yeah yeah um but i certainly had no uh context to you know what what to make of things and you know i i know that i had an uneasy reaction to uh tourists when it came out but it turns out that you know that that was really 
you know, effective because you're not um, most of the time, you're not there with a guitar singing pedantic songs with lyrics, telling people what, right. what to think. It's much more subtle. And uh, it also reminds me of something Alan Bishop said, I think I quoted in the book where he talks about the, the idea of a character and it gives you a little bit of something to play with. It's kind of like you are a character is porous, but obviously, you know, there's, it's a, fuzzy dividing line between that character and you but clearly there's a lot of you in that that character but <laughs> dealt dealt with these topics some of these topics in ways that i haven't seen uh or heard many people do i mean it's hard to do so intelligently but also in a way mm. that isn't just a complete buzzkill you know to, to you know to do so with some humor to leave some openings for people to take was he joking about that or not yeah that's the thing i mean it could be very you know, political work, you know, arts and work can be very off-putting and pedantic. And you don't want that if you, you know, I mean, I'm, I, yeah, I don't know if I even consider myself, you know, political or an artist, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, but politics is in everything, obviously. I'm, I'm, I, I'm galvanized by things I've witnessed and things that I consider to be important and things that I kind of, see in people around me or at the time I was making those records that that nobody's thinking about this in the same way it's shock value on one hand um your reaction to it is you know is I'm sure other people had that reaction to it too I mean the artwork alone but it's it's not necessarily obscured it's quite overt but then there's a fine line between I guess that's the it's up to the to the maker at that point how they're going to present this I'm usually turned off by political records, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, I don't know. It's uh, they're, they're like just by the sheer, just how pedantic it is or how kind of preachy or soapboxy. So you have to kind of subvert it in a way you have to kind of, yeah. Alan says, you know, okay, character can be a good device. Um, that's true. Um, there are all kinds of ways to embody it and try to make urgent or relevant work. Uh, you don't, you know, it's also, you're also kind of dooming it to a certain time. 9-11, you know, isn't going to happen every day, um, or is it? I mean, I think maybe we're still, you know, we're still, I think it just happened a few weeks ago. Yeah, right, right. But, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. but, uh, you know, it's, I don't know. I, I go back to those records sometimes, and as much as I don't really love listening to my my own stuff, I, I do return to it to just kind of see where it sits, especially that stuff, um, that kind of porous that goes there. And yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy with it. You know, I'm uh, I think well, or I'm pretty unhappy that it's still does this. You know, I still feel the same way, or that that I we're still dealing with a lot of the same issues that um, that made me uh, want to do work like that. At that time, 2016, you know, if you take that poorest album, which has a long title, what is it? Popular mm -hmm. Guide to... Oh, I like that one. It, it's uh, it's called Modern, Modern Journal of Popular Savagery. Modern Journal of Popular Savagery. Yeah. Popular. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and then the tourists are kind of bookends of of that era. And I was rereading re your interview in the or your interview for The Quietist that you did around the time of that album. And you were saying it might be irrelevant in a month, but maybe it'll be relevant later on that's kind of how i've been feeling recently but like yeah i thought it was very timely and then the next thing you know we're off into this whole other thing with the 2016 election 
yeah. and then whatever has happened for six or seven years but then yeah we're kind of it's back been... in the we're back <laughs> we're we're back yeah we never i there's just like yeah we're back we're always back it's it's and uh, we're making like a hundred year loop at this point you know it feels like so right, you know right. I, I don't know what we're returning to but it's yeah it's kind of like you're shooting yourself in the foot doing a record like like you can imagine i mean i didn't think of it at the time and i and i don't care but it's uh, uh ultimately i'm sure a lot of people are turned off if somebody recommends poorest uh somehow and then they come across some of that material which is a plenty um sprinkled throughout the records there's there's a lot of that um i'm sure it's a real turnoff to people because it's it, it's not meant to be polarizing it's not even meant to be shocking i don't know what it is it's just an expression so it's like i'm not i kind of play with the concept of being on a soapbox or preaching just like i play with in porous with other themes of even like misogyny or you know self-delusion or narcissism or you know um inflated sense of self i mean these are kind of common porous themes that you know i, I don't know if anyone gets the joke but me but you know is it a joke i don't know it's just expression and it's just kind of that's what that's what i think music should be i think it should be uh working with the times like that i don't know part of that is like you know going back to the 80s for a second um I'm like one of those guys now. So like in the eighties, all these guys that were saying back in the sixties, you know, it was right. like, you know, now here I am. But, uh, but, but back in, back then when I was quite young and, and coming up, you, you know, it's weird, like subculture uh, and in the Bay area, you know, it was, it was pretty apparent. So my young mind thought, and I've shared this idea with others that agree, you see a person who kind of dresses a certain way. Um, they're listening to this kind of music. You're going to assume that they've got similar politics and worldviews to you as you are also coming of age and learning about politics. Politics is really intimidating to get into when you're a kid, you know, if you don't go, you know, if that's not your, you know, like what, what, what do you have, but what your parents and your environment gave you, that's it, you know, and unfortunately that leaves you bereft of any, <laughs> anything really, like you don't have good context history isn't taught that well in high school i mean it's, if it's taught at all like some version of history is taught right but how, yeah where do you start though you know like how do you even it's so intimidating i think a lot of people just avoid it it's too complicated that's that's i'm here this is my world america is a safe place to be in a way you know in in or it's a construct that it's this kind of like it is a bubble though and the bay area is a particular bubble it's literally at the end of the world you know it's like that's the you know you look at where it is geographically it's the end of the world you know it's like the end of the, the continent and then you have asia again it goes in a loop but it's like how how do you even start so you know i don't know uh the iraq wars the first iraq war kind of you know galvanized me in some way but i took a look around me and saw the kind of apolitical eh, you know what like the kind of thing well, why do you know you know like oh did you hear what happened in korea today why do you know somebody in korea like what would it what would it matter to you you know that's that's a line that my sister got at the office once, but politics were were extremely polarized in the U.S. at that time, and and even more so now. I mean, the kind of polarization we have now is next level. Like in the last seven since I've left the U.S., it's like I can't even compute it. But then in a different way. But it it was also like you know these signifiers I was talking about with people. You kind of figure, hey, that person's going to be into that, this kind of politics, read these kind of books. And it was kind of like you know subculture was this, and there were so many like splinters of subculture. That's all been obliterated now. I feel like subculture doesn't mean anyone can be wearing anything, and it doesn't mean anything. It, you know, it means or they're a total fascist, or you know whatever they got a nose ring. It doesn't mean shit, right? They're wearing a meat puppet shirt. It doesn't mean anything, you know. At this point, so it's like you know it kind of got crumpled up into something um but 
but also it was somehow cooler to be apolitical. And that was kind of an un, un, it was kind of enforced in an unspoken way amongst music scenes, at least that, you know, and that was the kind of exact climate that got me really riled up in my art and music. And eventually with, with my Iraqi and Syrian work, presenting that stuff too in the diaspora music work for sublime frequencies, but making, making those albums, you know, felt relevant, but I didn't, I also felt like the room was empty. I wanted to see a hundred bands doing stuff like that, but then you just get, you know, I don't know who's the big, big like mainstream political band. It's not Queens of the stone age. It's, um, Oh God, help me. Will um, rage against the machine. You know, all. yes. Thank you. Rage against the machine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Rage against the machine. That's right. You know, yeah, you get you get that, you know, and then that's a huge turnoff, you know, listen to that music, you know, it's like, who's going to be into that? You know, somebody, but again, these are, these are important gate. I believe in gateways, you know, there's like gateway drugs for music, for, for cinema, for that. You can't fault anyone for getting into Rage of the Machine, Rage Against the Machine when they're, you know, 13 or 14 or 16 and they want to, they want to have, they have a rage and they want to rage against some machine. Tell me about this. Right. And so that, that can lead to things. Right. But that uh, it 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 felt it feels and felt important to me to do that. I did a I don't know if I should give this away because I but uh, it's already been done. So on October twenty eighth, uh, Porest did a oh. the only okay. public public performance uh, that I will do this year at Cafe Otto here in London, and um, I decided that I was going to psychically assassinate former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, and I had twenty minutes to do it, and I had the help of Peter Conheim. Uh, who is a Kissinger expert and uh, uh, CEO of H1 Dreamseer, which is, has this beta kind of platform that's going to help me hone my psychic skills. And so I had 20 minutes to do it, and I failed. And But we can only try, right? And so when Kissinger dies, I think I'm going to release that video and blame myself for it. And, uh, you know, it's fun. It's fun to do that stuff. And it's fun, it's fun to put that anger somewhere. And, um, you know, the anger is real and the the cognitive dissonance is real and commentary on that, that level of fucking cognitive dissonance that we're seeing in the last 10 years. I mean, somebody's winning this war. You know what I mean? It's like, I've never seen, I've never seen a more polarized time. And I thought we were kind of headed somewhere different, even, even in nine 11 times. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, yeah. I thought you expressed, uh, or poorest expressed on that album, whose title I've angled, uh, the uh, disillusionment, the disenchantment with um, the sort of slogans and the uh, sacred cows, like the democracy protest. And that's 2016. <laughs> and what have we heard? You know, we're constantly told about threats to our democracy. And yet when 80% of the public is even just asking for a ceasefire, the Senate mm -hmm. is saying 100 to nothing or 99 to one, uh, no. And you know, it's like we don't ha we don't have so what democracy? These are this these are like these these platitudes, and, and even um, poking some holes in those balloons is is something you don't even hear that much. But it's it's almost like you're or porous because it's a character uh, is the bearer of these um, you know the one who is acknowledging the elephant in the room, and that other people are like. Ugh. Why do you, you know, it does make yeah, you, why, why do you got to do that? Man, we were just coming to have a good time, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, you know, let's kill. Yeah, it's so stigmatized. And this is another thing, like within subcultural talk, I don't know if I really got that across the way I wanted to, but within that also you have like, 
very tribal stigmas almost in 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 the states where identity is a big part of that and we work really hard on cultivating our identities right as a youth and coming of age and college age and then being an adult and what that means and who i what i am what i believe in here's the music i listen to here's how weird i am here's how weird i'm not here's what i do you know what i mean all that stuff is like very important and out of that comes a hyper-focused kind of rugged individual way of processing and think and thinking tribally in a way that's like i don't know that's where we get this kind of polarization i think i think it's just on steroids next level polarization in that way and at that same time then i felt like politics got very stigmatized being if you go to a demonstration which you know we can all agree really doesn't do any good they're going to do whatever the hell they want no matter whether half a million or five people show up to a protest they're laughing at us right like it just sure it, it makes it it makes sense to do to show that there are bodies that care about this event but there's an impunity there that supersedes that. I think we're beyond like a march at this point, right? So the democracy protest. Um, and I felt that way before, and I, I feel that way this month as well. But I think, unfortunately, the it's easy to stigmatize. Uh, you know, it's like what, what Santa Cruz did to reggae and dub music. Uh, when you think about, you know, or what, and what Berkeley did to politics. Like, oh, I'm not a person that goes to the protest or I'm not a person that is uh, does any form of activism. I'm not a person, I don't do politics. That's a privilege. How do you not do, you know, I guess, I, but it's. But I know what they mean. You don't have to do politics. You can just kind of, I don't know, do something else, right? Like, you don't, yeah, it's a privileged place to be and to, to not do politics. And I guess people are just enjoying their privilege flagrantly. But I feel that um, what I'm trying to get to is that, you know, political music also then finds it very hard place music that is political or touches on politics without abstracting it too much or obscuring it or like in the guise of a love song or something you know who like light politics like other than that like it gets really relegated and it works with those stigmas really work against it so like the places that we've put all of those things you know into these compartments i think it doesn't help us move forward and it also helps keep people uh, uh it, it also makes people avoid uh, entering into that arena but I just felt like, you know, whatever, I have nothing to lose. Um, and, you know, a lot of that poorest material is, is like, I don't know, as, as bombastic as it sounds, is probably just like emo at heart, really. You know what I mean? It comes from a humane place and a place of real humor uh, and real disdain and uh, all of that. So it's just kind of a, a strange cocktail, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think the best, yeah, that was not to bring everything back to the book, but um the, the places where the humor blurs into something else and you and it's both at once whether it's dark humor or the tragic humor or something like that it, it's um you certainly wouldn't call poorest comedy but again it, i wouldn't file it in the political only bin either because it, there's there's always more more that's uh going on and certainly you know i was thinking just as you were talking there you know Poli what does politics mean? I mean, you, you could sing a song about voting for this candidate, or it could be something like Sublime <laughs> Frequencies putting out music from, you know, pop music from Iraq in 2005 or 2004 or whatever it is, you know, right. you know, right. that that was you talk about countercultural in the 2000s, you know, that was important and countercultural, but also not in a reactionary way. It was it was just kind of, yeah, I don't know. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. I'm glad it was taken that way by you. I mean, for, I'll speak for myself, you know, uh, with, with that work. Um, 
I'd say the motivations, there was a politics to releasing that stuff. And there was an urgency in releasing stuff from Iraq, material from Iraq, from Syria. At that time, uh, heavily demonized. Uh, we were, you know, we, I'm not part of it, but, uh, you know, the, the country I grew up in, you know, it, uh, we're pummeling Iraq, just pulverizing Iraq. And, uh, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, there is a politics in there for me. Each of those releases were political and uh, there was an approach to working with music from the Arab world. It was really just kind of spawned by my growing awareness of, of American foreign policy uh, and then finding ways of operating in diametric opposition to that, you know, into the myopic kind of that apolitical numbness that you can find in the, in the States at that time or, uh, you know, and maybe that's changing now. I, I don't know if I'm very qualified to talk about the states of today because I've been gone for so long, but maybe the younger generation, but particularly at the onset of the two Iraq wars and the insidious, you know, post-11 mindset, post-9-11 mindset. And I don't know, just watching the, the, the destruction of Iraq through, through war and sanctions and, and as someone who'd spent a lot of time in the region getting to know Syria and, and whatnot, and then watching the demonization and the just the constant ignorance, you know, about the country and the region there was that sense of urgency to release music from these places uh, to kind of disrupt the narrative or present a narrative where the, where they're you know to present music and culture you know from 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 a world that was that was obscured or abstracted intentionally even and dehumanized in the west so that is a sense of urgency that guided the work uh, especially with the iraq and, and syria releases for sure and omar Suleiman as well fits into that right okay yeah and um you were you were back and forth between uh it was you were spending a lot of time in syria in particular in the 2000s right and i because i was in that quietest interview you mentioned that you noticed some things that seemed off and you were there a last time in maybe 2010 but i don't know if you've mm -hmm. been um yeah but what what all um what all were you doing there i mean uh what can you tell us about your time in syria in in uh you know, how many times did you go over there and how much time did you spend there? Uh, it would, yeah, I mean, I, th I think it started in, in 97, late 97. I went to Syria for the first time and I was, um, I was really into uh, Syrian and uh, Iraqi music and, and learning more about it. And I thought, you know, that was one, one drive. And learned, I was learning about the Syrian communities that live along the Kabul River in uh, northeastern Syria. And I just wanted to go out there. I couldn't, I didn't feel I could go to Iraq because I felt like I might be conscripted into the military at that time. But I really regret not going at that time in Saddam's time. But I, you know, I went to Syria and, and really fell in love with the place. And then, you know, I always say this and it just, it really moved me. So I, it was a, it was a game changer. And I went back as often as I could. Uh, you know, I went back four times or so. And then, you know, I was getting into uh, the tapes I was bringing home, for instance, music on the musical side of things. Omar Suleiman was something that I brought home in 97, I, five or six tapes. I went back in 2000, got a lot more of his tapes because I just really loved the urgency of the sound. And I just, it was just my brother and I and some friends and like Chris Cones and some other people listening to that stuff, you know, for seven or eight years before the idea came about, you know, going to propose making an album or a compilation to him, which, which we're lucky he said yes to and, and all of that. But uh, yeah, so I just, I would go to Syria and Lebanon in the region quite often and uh, it became a part of my life and I would get apartments there in Damascus three months at a time. It's a fantastic place. And it was really 
fucking heartbreaking to uh, to watch what happened, you know, which which happened starting around 2011. 2010 was my last trip there. Uh, um, and then my wife and I moved to uh, Vietnam, to Hanoi, uh, for a few years around the time that uh, it, Syria was just descending and then ISIS came up and, you know, Iraq was descending and the world was getting really, really weird uh, and, and sad. Um, lived in, in Vietnam and Malaysia for five years and then uh, relocated to, to London, where, which is where my wife is from. So I've been here for the last five years. But yeah, I... You know, in the interim, I started something called the Syrian Cassette Archives, which is um, at syriancassettearchives.org. It kind of speaks for itself. It's it's a place to share, document, research all these hundreds of cassettes that I got over the years, um, which and it's a growing collection. We're going back in. I was supposed to go be in Syria in three weeks for my return to Syria. But uh, due to what's happening in the region right now, that's and, and some of the stringent policies, like I'd have to have a tour guide in Syria, which doesn't, it's not conducive to getting the work done. So I have a, I have a Syrian partner who's going to go in, we're going to Jordan and we're going to um, bring the Syrian guys down from Syria to bring some tape decks to them. We've got, you know, a thousand more tapes out there in Syria to digitize an archive. And that's been a really cool project. It's kind of like, even like I say, letting go of the curatorial steering wheel of these kind of releases I've been doing of compilations and just kind of broadly making a lot of this music available that, that, um, and kind of collating it and telling stories about it and interviewing people who've, who've, who've done work on those records and, and, or distributed them or did the art or whatever. I mean, those are really interesting stories to us and we're learning so much and it's kind of a way to, um, hopefully, you know, all of the, all of the kind of like demographic shifts that can happen with war, uh, been violently displaced in Syria, you know, like music may never sound like that again in these parts. And we're over here, you know, like the people all moved to Europe or they got out or they're, they're not making music anymore. Traditions are lost. So the, that, that project kind of upholds that. And that's something I'm super into doing these days. I did see that you had that porous show just a few weeks ago, and I don't know if that Henry Kissinger thing was the full extent of it, but what else, was there anything else involved in that show and or is the, the, are there additional uh, things on the horizon for either either porous and or Mark Jurgis? I mean, porous continues when I can, when life doesn't get in the way. It's something that always just, you know, I feel drawn to as long as it calls me, I'll do it. And it's a slow machine. And uh, always, you know, it's not always going to be a record like Tourist or Modern Journal of Popular Savagery. I mean, some of them are just fun or stupid or, you know, like um, uh, an amalgamation of all of the above or moody. Uh, but, you know, I'm always, I have three or four records in the can that I'm, you know, working on and slowly and piecing together. But the Kissinger show was a, once, was a one-off. Um, it's just something I pulled together. I was invited to do a festival for Vicki Bennett, people like us here. Um, does a kind of like residency at Cafe Oto. I've done two of them with her. Um, wasn't sure what I was going to do. The idea came up before um, before October 7th. But then, of course, um, you know, the show was a complete incitement to murder of a head of a state, right? So uh, with, a, with such a fervor and determination. Uh, but it was pretty funny to me, you know, like it's it was it was great. But I think I, I could feel that it was like a, it's, it was tense in the room. 
you know, and I think um, it might have shaken a few people up. Uh, people were laughing, you know. Everyone hates Kissinger. It's 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 easy, but I think the 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 point of it was that there is that there is there's a power dynamic that 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 doesn't exist, which would allow Kissinger to be prosecuted for war crimes. It just doesn't exist. So I was going to have to take it upon myself and be a vigilante and psychically murder him in his sleep in Kent, Connecticut, you know, from 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 afar. Um, but you know, yeah, I mentioned uh, I mentioned Palestine. I mentioned Bibi Netanyahu. I you know worked him into the lyrics. You know, you know. I mean, I made it speak to the times, but um, it wasn't overtly this. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on that is overtly now in this. That like Radio Alhara in Bethlehem, which is like a collective of people from all over the world working on like Palestinian centric programming and awareness on this stuff, mixing music with speeches and with, with you know. Um, uh, context which you know which is lacking uh so yeah i mean what's next for porist i mean yeah i'll just keep going and i you know have plans to keep doing it life gets crazy and 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 puts a stop on art sometimes and money get you know money becomes a problem whatever you know life life sickness illness everybody you know stuff like that all that fun stuff but yeah i mean you did ask me i don't know if you want to touch on this but you did ask me about the culture work I do versus poorest and I had to right. think about okay. that I remember in a chat and uh probably don't have any time for that but no no we I was do. just gonna no, say that uh, yeah you were saying like where do you make the separation I can't remember what you said in the chat but I took a note of it and I was thinking about it and I think it's you know poorest is something that um that's as much me as that as the cultural work that I do it's the same person uh, but there's a there's a really a, there's a different a decidedly different approach whereas you know porous is like a a personal project which in a lot of ways is this you know informed by radical sound art and music and cinema and shock value and but it can also be novel you know and or bombastic and in that way i i always think about keeping it separate from the more like um cultural human or collaborative cultural work i do it it, it it's a different hat altogether but i can't escape that it's still me and those worlds kind of intersect sometimes. Um, you know, like for instance, in Porest, I do compose with field recordings, and but I can turn them upside down and shape them into something unrecognizable or, or you know, change their agenda or the, the context of them into something, you know, when it might have been something quite lighthearted originally, turned into something really insidious and dark. And um, uh, I take liberties with Porest, you know, that are different than the approach I can take with cultural work that I that I feel that's a self-imposed thing you know i add context that wasn't there i remove context to serve a you know like a nefarious purpose play with themes um or or i role play the worst human beings you can possibly imagine doing unspeakable things you know and and whereas i'm not going to do that in a in a release where i'm trying to present iraqi music or syrian field recordings all of that's allowed in porous but you know with field recording album like i remember syria it's a tribute to the place and the people and and even though I'm employing kind of porous editing approaches and there's a little bit of the the violence in the edit or and there are political statements in the jump cuts and the way kind of yeah I think I think anyway on a micro level and all those techniques creep in but there's a line drawn by me where I'm not going to just do a disservice to the country and and in my opinion I want to honor the country and and honor its sounds and stories and knowing that it's going to be a document that that somehow um preserves a period in time and, and a place that, that's important to, to think about. So there's thought given to that process. Yeah, that's kind of just something I wanted to say about it.